Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Oh, uh, yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Pretty good. Crazy stuff. Oh, yeah? Oh, God. Really? Oh God, it's all it's all such a struggle, John. Yeah, did you have a did you have a crazy morning? Oh <laughs> get the kids out the door and tumble out of bed, stumble to the kitchen. Woo. Wonder whatever happened in my life. Yeah. Did you uh did you go downstairs and drink a cup or did you wander Yawn and stretch? With, yeah. Try to come to life. <laughs> did you did you drink a cup of ambition though? Drink That's a cup of ambition. Yeah. yeah, it just kind of just keeps going like this, doesn't it? Yawn and stretch. Dunk, 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 dunk. The Sheena still... Easton song that we know of mm. as Morning Train, mm. which sounds a little dirty, was uh, oh, originally... I had never thought about that interpretation, but yeah. Morning Train. Uh-huh. It was originally called 9 to 5, but uh, they had to change it for the U.S. release, which also sounds dirty, because uh, Dolly Parton already had a hit with 9 to 5. Right. If you think about it, almost everything sounds dirty. Yeah, U.S. release. I feel like I'm going to start using both U.S. release and morning train. Just, just incorporate them into my into my uh, pillow talk. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Isn't yeah. that this is this is how the brain works? You yeah. know. Hey, baby, I'm I'm going to have to change this for the U.S. release. Mm-hmm. Uh, hoping to have a simultaneous worldwide release. Oh my goodness, boy. Yeah, Boy, cup, cup of ambition. Got blue here. Got a little bit blue. Yeah. You got a little blue last week. That was fun. Did I get blue? I mean, you talked Did I talk about, about blue uh, things? Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. If I don't know if, the, if I have the energy to get into it. But uh, yeah. you, your interest in the man, smelling the man's parfum. And then you uh, followed him around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, the parfum. Uh, that's right. That's right. I did. I did. I talked about some. Uh, I talked about some sex. Sex things. Yeah. Sex feelings. Really. I read a. I read. Um. I read a, a article on the internet this morning about uh, an artisanal uh, dildo company. Well, they make, of they make they make bespoke modern uh, uh, dildi. Sure. You don't want to just be using an old dryer old model. <laughs> Well, either an old model of it. The thing is, you don't want. Here's what the. Here's what you don't want. You, you do want an old dildo, like a like one from the past. Oh, some old world craftsmanship. Yeah, this is the kind of you know that kind of burled wood dildo of the 19th century. What you don't want is one of these sort of you know mid period dildos from the 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe early 60s. You mean like like a, like a Japanese electronic dildo you'd buy like at a Woolworth. Yeah, you don't want that. One of those, one of those inexpensive. Nothing. Not, I don't mean to be ping pong, but but you don't want some kind of mid market like right. LeBaron of dildos. I think for a long time most dildos were made out of the same material that Super Balls were made out of. How oh, interesting, right? I think if you if you dropped one on the ground, it would it would the first time it would bounce like six feet high. Yeah, like higher than you'd expect. Yeah, and it was that kind of marbled plastic, red, white, and blue sort of marbled plastic and that's not what you want now not not a, a a normal contemporary guy wearing suspenders with a with a long beard and the sides of his head shaved is not going to use a super ball dildo <laughs> when he could use one that's made out of brass and steam gauges uh-huh uh-huh, right? like, like, a, like a Jules Verne device. Exactly. You want one that's going to have probably some dials. Mm-hmm. Maybe it makes a ping sound. Yeah, when you start it up, it goes... <laughs> <laughs> we are living here in Allentown. <laughs> oh, it takes a while to get started. 
doot. Yeah, right. And the little the little flywheel starts spinning. Uh. Yeah, you know, I, I think if I were going to have a uh, a steampunk dildo, I think I would be looking for something that was like an improbably large machine. Yeah, right. Like like the size of like a box fan, maybe bigger. Mm-hmm. Well, and that it used, drives a device that's actually kind of kind of tiny. Yeah, that uses a a a, a very heavily lacquered uh, boat oar in some capacity. It's got it's got it's got flywheels. It's got gauges. It makes a poof 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 sound. Right. It should sound a little bit like like an old timey generator or something. Yeah, and it's you know brass tubing. Oh, of course you got to have brass, and 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 you got some uh, some studs on it. Yeah. Aren't there a lot of like like studs on things? Yeah, but now it's starting to sound a little bit medieval. Uh. <laughs> starting to sound like something some the Torquemada would use. <laughs> we just use the arm of a dead peasant. <laughs> <laughs> the arm of a dead baby. <laughs> there's so many of them. Yeah, but that's the way economics works, right? That's you, there's there's a need, and then there's something that changes in the marketplace. Maybe something involving Copernicus, but you got a baby's arm, and you know you know you might want to do some business with that. Well, and this is the thing: once you start talking about business, you start talking about the history of entrepreneurship. You start talking about the history of entrepreneurship. You really you're talking about the history of, of humanity. This the is history, the yeah. desire to better ourselves. The history of humanity is the history of entrepreneurs. Yes. Pushing the envelope through entrepreneurial entrepreneurship. Sometimes they push the envelope out of the box, don't they? Ooh, I don't know. You're, I mean, I don't want to open the kimono Mm-mm. too Just far. Do a deep dive on this one. <laughs> uh, but entrepreneurs, even right now as we speak, are transform or they're terraforming the mental landscape. Are you? I with thought me? that was a made-up word. I thought you made up that word, but then I learned that that's a real word. Terraforming? Yeah, it's super interesting, because you talked about the Gaia bomb, the Genesis device, yeah. these things I assume are Star Trek things, but I went and read about it. So it's an interesting, it's, it's been around in sci-fi for some time now. Oh yeah, terraforming. Come on. What are you going to call it when you, arrive in a, when you arrive in a distant sun-baked planet? Right. Or, or multiple, baked by multiple suns? And the basic, the basic idea is, or has been in the past, it's mostly about, in science fiction, speculative fiction, it's the idea of m- taking an existing planet or area that's currently not uh, naturally inhabitable by humans and doing something that basically hits reset and causes it to be something that would be inhabitable by humans. Yes, exactly. Now, did you just say speculative fiction? Yes. Because, because we've determined that science fiction is hurtful or because somebody within... Somebody within the science slash speculative fiction realm has has uh, indicated that one is is not equivalent to the other. Well, now that you've opened that kimono, mm-hmm. I have a feeling you're going to find out. Mm, I see. So someone is going to write me. You're saying someone's going to write me an email or a tweet explaining the difference. Well, pedantically about, explaining the difference. Between no, us. nobody would ever do that. We um. <laughs> like I can't believe you respond to people about bits. Well, we went through that whole thing where it's like, <laughs> I know the answer. I know the answer. Oh, 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 oh! <laughs> we talked about this uh, a, a couple, three weeks ago. That distinction between like science fiction and fantasy. And I, you know, I'm an outsider on these things. Mostly, I'm, you know, I like mainstream stuff. I've read some stuff, but I'm not like a. I'm not. I don't know lots of stuff about either science fiction or uh, fantasy. But. um I guess what, speculative fiction. When did I first hear that? I feel like I maybe first heard that in my head. I associate it with Kurt Vonnegut. 
Well, you know, if, if it was just called speculum fiction, then it would be Harlan Ellison. Uh, is that right? You don't think that's a German thing? Mm-hmm. I, I think you're absolutely right. It probably, Ellison's not a German name. Mm-mm. Anyway, no, uh, go on. Go on. I didn't well, mean no, to I mean, in my head, like, I guess, I see, I don't know. And I, please don't explain it to me, people. I don't really don't care. But, um... I know it matters to you to tell me, but please don't. No, but um, when I think of you think of science fiction, and to me, science fiction is the idea of you know it's fiction, it's a story that involves sciencey things. And I'm with you to so me, far, well, the thing is, speculative fiction to me, I think that of that more of like this doesn't really rely on uh, some kind of. It's almost more like an alternative, alternate. Excuse me. Oh, I think what I we want to say is alternative. People say alternate, yeah. but I think alternate means every other. Oh. It's one of those words like penultimate or epicenter that are, almost everybody uses wrong. Oh, I see. Or like uh, like uh, deep dive or open the kimono. I think when you say alternate, you say we're going to meet on alternate weeks. Right. And you would say, or you, but I, I frequently... Or you would say somebody was someone else's alternate. Right, which is like a second. Right. In a duel. Right. I think, you know, alternative means a difference. Now, now I know one both of us have used, and we'll get back to speculative fiction in a minute. One of us... One that both of us have used wrong, even recently, is uninterested versus disinterested. And I think that is a, is a difference that we need mm. to bring back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, think I agree. If it doesn't appeal to you or holds no interest for you, you are uninterested in that. If you're somebody who doesn't have a stake in it, as I like to say, you don't have a dog in the fight, you're right. a disinterested party. Now, you know, we always say don't have a dog in that race, but I think it's because... Oh, because the Iditarod. Well, yeah, up here, we race dogs. I don't know what you guys do. You fight dogs, I guess, down in there in Florida, California. In Florida, there was lots of dog racing. There was some very unusual uh, betting in Florida. I was about to use the word paramutual, except I don't really know what that means. Yeah, and I, at first I thought you said betting instead of betting. Oh, like dog betting. Is this, yeah, is this, this is turning into kind of a Borges podcast at this point. Isn't <laughs> it? I, uh, I, last night I was watching, I actually happened to be watching some videos of Borzois hunting. That's different from a Borges. It's a different from a Borges. Uh, or a or a uh, a borge or a, or a, a borgie or a or a borgie, which is a when uh, people who uh, who run um, run an Italian uh, city state have intercourse in groups. Right, sure. Or, John Hodgman uh, would think that joke is funny. Yeah, I think he he's already laughing. Now Victor Victor Borgia is the guy who would who had a puppet on his hand. I would you know I would say that I've been to some borgies. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I sat against the wall. <laughs> anyway, I was watching. Afterwards, you got to go see the De Medici's for. I get nothing. <laughs> oh, the De Medici's. Oh, don't they laughed. make they make uh, artisanal pasta? Don't they? The De Medici's. Yeah, I think so. It uh, cooks to perfection <coughs> in uh, ten to twelve minutes. But I'm watching these videos of Borzois hunting, mm-hmm. which and is Bor- Borzois is a Russian hunting dog. Well, it's a so the, I th- my understanding is that the Borzois was the dog was the exclusive dog of the Russian royal family. Oh, that's a so dog. much so. That after the Russian Revolution, all the Borzois in Russia were killed because they symbolized the royal family. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's complicated. Yeah. And the only Borzois that survived were Borzois that had been given as gifts by the Russian royal family to royal families throughout Europe. Wow. As a, as a token of their royal esteem. So there were Borzois in England and presumably Germany. and But you could only find an expat, Borzoi. Yeah, and then those Borzois were bred to survive the line, and now there are Borzois back in Russia, 
because, you know, of course, there's a... You get oligarchs. Oligarchs probably want a Borzoi. Yeah, there's a resurgence of, uh, of Russian nationalism, and the Borzoi maybe has... The symbolism of it has changed, or maybe it's just that they want to return to the czars. But watching I see. It's, it's their version of, like, small batch whiskey. It's like... It's, it, it, it is nice, but it's yeah. also, like, it signifies things. Yeah, exactly. It's like the contemporary fashion to wear powdered wigs. Okay. That we have here, where it's like... You For know a long what? time, people just stopped wearing powder wigs. You'd see a powder wig and laugh. And now yeah. today, it's not unusual at all. You'll see, you go to a coffee shop, you see four or five people in powdered wigs. Sure. I mean, the, the, the popularity of the musical Hamilton mm-hmm. has brought back this whole powdered wig scene. And, you know, for a lot of the, the middle, middle period of American history, we, we were not impressed by the, by the founding fathers. We wanted nothing to do with them. They, we, we consider ourselves contemporary, modern people. We want to make a break from that culture. The last thing we want to do is wear the, the wigs of our fathers. Yeah, we were wearing helmets. We were mm-hmm. wearing helmets and goggles. Caps. Some caps. Maybe get a transistor radio. You could have a uh, tamashanter. Tamashanter, right? Mm-hmm. A, a a deer stalker mm-hmm. with a transistor radio. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, these videos of Borzois hunting. Uh, the Borzois is a very fast dog, faster that, than was, a rabbit. What was Gibson? He was a well. Have we talked about this? The passing of Gibson. Well, no, not the passing of Gibson. But when Gibson arrived, Gibson looked like a small Borzois. But. What Gibson was, was a Borzoi crossed with a Whippet. And a Whippet is, looks like a tiny Borzoi. Uh, isn't and, a Whippet kind of like a, like, a, like a tiny Greyhound? Uh, well, yeah, but, you know, Greyhounds and, I mean, they're all long-nosed running dogs. Okay. And so what they did was they tried to get the long hair of a Borzoi with the size of a Whippet. Oh. And... What they achieved in Gibson was he was a little bit too big to be in the family of this new breed they were trying to create. And so he had kind of gotten bounced out of the breeding stock because, you know, they have to cull the big ones and cull the hairless ones and cull the... This is how it works. This is the process. That's right. Cull the ones that understand English. Cull the ones that, you know, that can tap their hooves to do math. Mm -hmm. So Gibson arrived on the scene and I said... Hello, new dog. You are a small Borzoi. And my mom said, no, the new breed is called the Silk... I can barely even say it. Okay. The Silken Windhound. Silk, silken Windhound. That sounds expensive. Because, because when the Borzoi has really long fur, it takes on this kind of... You know, it looks like wings almost. I mean, it takes on this very silky, cascading, lion's mane. And so, Silken silken Windhound was the name of the breed that that, that, that they were working toward. And it was somewhere in the, it was in the middle period of a breed where it maybe hadn't been accepted all the way by the American Kennel club uh but you know they were they were trying to trying to produce a line that would make this a a real breed rather than just a Mm crossbreed but the problem was when i'm out in the world walking this dog and people come up and say what kind of dog is that i'm forced to make a choice yeah either i either i say out loud silken windhound Mm. now you gotta explain 
Now you got to explain. Or you say, it's a half borzoi, half whippet. Or you say, that's eh, a small borzoi. Or something. You could probably you know, say, we could probably get away with, we talked about this before with career, discussing your career. You could probably get away with something like, mm, he's mostly borzoi. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good, that never occurred to me. Mostly borzoi. Yeah. But the thing is, I, the problem with that is it sounds like your borzoi got out and, you know, and had an affair with a, with a mongrel. And oh, I, and I, I wanted see. to indicate that this was, this was attempting at least to be a purebred dog. Oh yeah. So essentially he, he's supposed to look like this. It's, this is, this is what it's meant to be. It's a little big, it's very small compared to a borzoi, but it's still, you know, uh, three feet tall. I mean, the borzois are huge. Right, right, right. Anyway, as I was watching these videos, I found a video, which originally was a film, of three borzois killing a wolf in 1910. Wow. In, in the snow. Oh, you, they have a strategy, right? Yeah. Don't they have an yeah. inbred strategy, of, uh, a bred-in strategy? Yeah, one of them grabs one front leg, one of them grabs one back leg, they flip him over, and the third one goes for the neck. Wow. And uh, this is how they hunt. They and hunt. they don't have to have a meeting or anything. No, I think they just know what they're doing. And you're watching this thing, and the you know it's a wolf, so it's not going down easily. And it was much... I always imagined that it was a like, whip, whip, whop, pop, and then the bite on the neck, and then it's over. Right? Like a very surgical process but like a like a <clears throat> like a cat on the savannah like it would be some kind of like boop boop you're done boop boop you're done right is it, is, it was uglier than that well it was intense because mm. you know the borzois are big but the wolf outweighs them and so sure. the one grabs the front the one grabs the back but when they're as they're flipping the wolf the wolf is also spinning and contorting trying to get away and so it's really like three dogs on a wolf and they are trying to enact their plan and and the wolf is against it. And it's it's really a free-for-all. Um, and what was crazy about this is I watched this video for about, I don't know, uh, five minutes before I realized that it was actually a loop oh. of a fight that in the loop is probably only 15 seconds long it's like a it's like a early 20th century dog vine yeah that's right it's a dog vine mm -hmm. except it doesn't have that weird jittery thing in that vines do where it kind of you know it's meant to loop but that sort of starts over it's also every probably time. Not, not 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 trying way too hard to be funny yeah and also there's no entrepreneurial aspect to it where somebody i, I wasn't i wasn't gonna say anything somebody but, you know. up the chain at vine is hoping to do an ipo and yeah. and, and and make 40 million dollars and get out mm-hmm this is, uh, this is when you'd make a, a, a wolf loop just out of, out of love for the, well, for the sure. medium. You, because you, you know, it's a pa passion project. I and mean, a lot of entrepreneurs, you watch any TV show that involves entrepreneurs, that's, always, that's a frequent criti criticism. It's like, first of all, they'll say, ah, oh, this, is, this is not a company. This is a product. And it's barely even a product. Yeah. And in and this where's case, your this passion? Is, where's your passion? You, you want to have something that can scale. You want a 10x growth for your wolf fine. That's right. I'm not going to invest my $1 in mm -hmm. this. Right. Unless I can see it scale, but you can yeah. see what it what it ultimately was was somebody out in a snowy field hand cranking a film camera, and the entire reel of film was probably just fifteen seconds worth oh, of film. Right, right, right. And right. so they caught this like incredible moment of these three dogs attacking a wolf, uh, and it, you know I've 
I've owned these dogs with my, with my mom my whole life, and I'd never seen one. Oh, I didn't realize this is. I thought Gibson was uh, was a was a one off, but he he's part of a, a long line of of large dogs you've had. So when I was born, my mom was breeding Borzois. Wow. And again, the Borzois are as tall as, if you take a guitar case and lean it against a wall, that's how tall a Borzois is. I mean, they're, they're huge. They're huge. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not that tall, but they're very tall. And uh, we had them all over the house when I was little. And then sadly, at one point when I was still crawling, I was at my mom's feet she was in the kitchen. It was the 60s. And so two things were true. One, the kitchen floor was shag carpet. That's uh, such which, an interesting design decision. Which no one has done before or since, right? I think that shag carpet in the kitchen was precisely from November of 1967 mm-hmm. to June of 1969. And you would never have done it before that or since. Nixon doesn't get the credit he deserves. <laughs> you know what? That's exactly true. He was creating a world in which it was safe to have shag carpet in your kitchen. Yeah. And I'm sure the shag... But then you could also... Only Nixon could decide to remove shag carpeting from your kitchen. You know, only if, Nixon. The thing is, a Democratic president couldn't, couldn't have removed shag carpet from the kitchen, right? It took right. a Republican to send Kissinger to take the carpet out. Also the EPA. Right, right. Sure. It was a catalytic converter issue. Is there a, bite? Is there a bite coming in this story? Because I'm getting nervous. I have, to, oof, I have to imagine that the carpet was either avocado, mm-hmm. burnt umber. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh uh, harvest? Maybe harvest. I think and, harvest was, wasn't harvest the other popular? Avocado was, everything we own was always avocado. Yeah. Harvest was that uh, sickening throw up colored yellow, I think. Right, harvest, sure, harvest sunshine or desert. I'll find out. Desert bloom, mm-hmm. and then there was always that brown color that was just sort of um, what would you call it? You a chocolate donut. Oh yeah, I had a I had a, a pick group that was that color. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sitting at my mom. I'm I'm at my mom's feet, and her prized Borzoi, the 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 mother who had had produced, you know, the, the 25 puppies that had, well, she was doing her part to, um, to keep this breed alive. And when she said, when she got to Washington, there were no Borzois anywhere. And she, she produced 25 puppies that ended up being the, the, uh, the dogs that created the, the West coast Borzoi population. That's how it works. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, that's very entrepreneurial of her. It was. Did it she was. know? Did she know that she, the the trail that she was blazing when she made those dogs have intercourse? Did she, was she aware of that? She was, and I think for most of the seventies, she followed the the line and saw the family tree of all these dogs. That then, you know, I don't think you can find a Borzoi in the Northwest that didn't at one point um, end up in in this shag carpet kitchen at our house. Hmm. But so I'm sitting there. And then all of a sudden I start crying. She looks down and Manushka, the, the old lady who had been my, my friend and companion, had bitten me 17 times in the face. What? Pierced, Are you kidding me? Pierced my eyelid. Almost, oh my God, John, this is awful. Almost took my nose off. And it happened in a, in a flash, like... She bit me 17 times like just pow, 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 pow. And they had, you know, they found like 17 individual bite marks 
all on my face. And my mom was like, you know, little bits of your face were hanging off. It was, it was unclear whether you would be scarred for life. Oh my God, John, that's so gruesome. <coughs> well, you must, I was, you must have been so scared. Well, I was just a child. I don't remember it. It seemed, I'm sure it left a lasting impact on me. It's why I don't trust women. Yeah. And it's why I did bad in school. Explains, it probably explains a lot. Explains a lot, right? It There's almost nothing like, that that couldn't explain. Every time you've tried to bite me, what have I done? Yeah, you, you get pretty upset. Exactly. Yeah. So my mom, of course, had to, and Manushka was her, before I was born, Manushka was her child. And so... Oh, she's got a Sophie's Choice situation now. Well, she had to put, she had to put Manushka down. I think she did the right thing. Well, sure. You I mean, you know, you, you, you turned out all right. But then she became an evangelist of this whole thing that obviously you and I agree on also, which is that really no dog is safe around a baby. Don't ever make the mistake of putting your child next to a Rottweiler, no matter how much you feel like the Rottweiler is a nice dog. No matter, no matter how strong <laughs> the stats are, I mean, even if you take a, take a 99.99% dog that doesn't kill a kid, it only takes really that little bit. That's right. That's right. You don't get extra credit for being mostly nice. Yeah, the dog is amazing. He's always been a great friend. Never, he, never done anything like this before. And he only killed your kid once. Mm-hmm. He's so been around he, it for years, and it only happened that one time. It only happened the one time where he ripped my kid's throat out. So we did not have Borzois for many years because that was traumatic for us both. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever been a mother, mm-hmm. but when you see your kid's face after it's been bitten 17 times by your prized dog, I think you do say... Perhaps I will wait. That's a complicated feeling. And also just, you know, being a parent, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously you'd hate to see your kid suffering, but also just that feeling of like, oh, I'm a terrible person. Right. How did this happen? And what have I done? How, how did I let this happen? And I thought, you know, she thought like we were both right there. I was touching her pants, you know, like how much safer could she be? And Manushka was trained to the degree that, my, you know, my mom could make a hand signal from half a mile away and the dog would go left or right like she was voice trained and and signal trained like perfectly <coughs> anyway so we didn't have borzois for a long time and then we tried to reintroduce borzois into our lives but like a lot of highly bred dogs borzois have a couple of problems one the inevitable sort of haunches problem that all <laughs> big dogs have right? you may take a drink Right. Some people listening just to hear you say haunches. Haunches. <laughs> it has uh, a haunch, haunches problem. Haunches. Yeah, it has a haunches Pro- problem. Haunches problem. Um, he's one of my favorite comedians, Ron Haunches. Haunches. Yeah, well, I, like the great historical figure, Haunches Pilot. That's right. Uh, and uh, But one of their other problems is that they tend to be, or some of them are, very skittish. That was that was my see. Now this again, this is that kind of old thinking that you and I worry about trying to be a contemporary person. But I feel like in my head canon, in uh, in in Florida, you get a lot of adopted greyhounds because they just throw them out after a while. Oh, you right. know, the greyhounds have not historically been treated well. They get to a certain point, and then you adopt a greyhound, and then all the greyhounds I've been around, including friends of mine who'd adopted them. You know, as you know, we were just down the street from a dog track, right? And uh, you could you could uh, adopt greyhounds, and bo- I just remember them being like skittish, woo. Skittish. Very, very, very un, un, kind of unhappy, very preternaturally nervous animals. Nervous. I mean, they've been chasing an electric rabbit their whole lives and I presumably being kept in the 
surplus cages that they use for veals mm. or worse than veals. Mm-hmm. Like they, may, they maybe got them from Tyson's chicken in their chicken cages. Mm. And so these dogs are not well. Greyhound, Greyhound quality of life, probably not high on the list. Not high, right. And I think before people adopted them, they just became dog food at the end. Uh, oh, gosh. Right, right into the soil and green machine, mm. which is why there's so much encephalitis in dogs. Is that right? Well, yeah, mad dog disease. You've heard of this. Oh, that, that actually, that, that explains a lot, too. Yeah. But boars are dogs. They're animals, you know? Yeah, they're animals, right? Mm-hmm. So why are we even talking about them? Yeah, I don't know. But borzois come out sometimes, even if you've treated them well, even if you've fed them food that you made out of raw materials, even if you feed them out of your hand, like you're trying to entice a doe out of the forest. Uh, this uh, The first borzoi we got after the interregnum was this borzoi that, even though it was four feet tall at the shoulder, uh, it, you know, it, if you if you closed a book too hard, this dog would leap six feet in the air and yes. hide under, you know try and hide under the couch. But oh, can no you imagine? That's so it. awful. Yeah, terrible. You've heard of a dog called a, a Belgian Tavern? Isn't a Belgian Tavern uh, like a something you keep gravy in? <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, we we would call it a gravy boat, not yeah. knowing that there is actually a term of art for sure, it. Sure, Belgian Tavern. Could you hand me the Belgian Tavern, not the <laughs> boat, the Tavern? No, the Tavern. Tervurin. Um, oh, Tervurin. I live with a fella. Uh, I live with. Two, well, I was really, really poor after college, like everybody, and so I sh- we shared this. What would you call it? I mean, it it was barely even. It was less. It was less than an in law. It was basically a room in a bathroom, and it was it was really, really, really small. And we slept across two futons in on room the same, in a bathroom. And so we would sleep in there. And my friend, so it was the three of us: two tall guys, me, and one guy's Belgian Tervurin. And what? Had, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. Basically, in like what, probably like 150 square feet, maybe. Oh my god! And uh, it was very narrow. It was it was you know an in law ish thing. It was somebody had taken a room that shouldn't really be a place where people live and made it into a room, and we paid I think 200 dollars a month for the three of us to live there. Mm-hmm. The three and, of you plus the dog, plus the dog, plus uh, I forget the dog's name, but but it was so narrow. It basically was like a little little hallway with a place you could sleep. And this poor dog, it, it's it's not, it's it's so awful. He had adopted this. It had been like basically, its entire life for years had been being in a cage and beaten. That's it. Beaten, cage, cage, beaten. Like that was this dog's life. And it was a hopelessly wrecked, emotionally just scotched dog. It was terrible, this poor dog. But like anything that happened in the house, anything that happened, this poor dog, it would it wanted to run away, but yeah. it was the, the, the hallway was too narrow for it. <laughs> to turn around so it would run backwards through the house. <laughs> and yeah, I don't know. I, you don't usually see a dog moving backwards unless something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. You yeah. see a dog go backwards for a second. Right. It'll take a step or two. But to watch a, a, a giant, giant shepherd dog run backwards through a house is, is such a chilling image. Because they're looking over their shoulder, right? They're kind of looking over this way, they're looking over that way, backing up. He, he did it enough that I think he got a pretty good feel for the hallway. <laughs> But it was, I'm not, I'm not, I'm only, I'm laughing because I haven't thought about this in years, but like the, the image of, of that poor dog running backwards down the hallway was just, it was so awful. Yeah. I feel for those dogs. That's a terrible thing. And so, but so after the interregnum, yeah. you got, uh, so, you, you so got we back had into the, the Borzoi business. We got into the Borzoi business. We had this dog that, uh, you know, that leapt up on the top of furniture like a mountain goat whenever you uh, stirred your tea with a spoon. Oh, 
And it was determined that this dog was too um, too nervous to live in the city, right? It was it was not it was not enjoyable to own this dog because the dog had no affection for humans of any kind. And I mean, what could you do with the dog? I, I had a very interesting experience with it. I was walking the dog one day and was kind of walking in the forest. And I came, because we always voice train our dogs so that we try to walk them without leashes so that the, you know, it just knows to stay at your knee. Hmm. And we're walking through the forest where it's going to be, you know, it's easy to kind of keep the keep the situation under control. We're all alone out here in the forest. And we pop out of the woods and we're on a busy street. And we were in the process of training this dog and it was not fully trained. And we got to the street and it jumped into the street. And it was a it was a four-lane road. And there was a bus hurtling down the road, and this dog just jumped right in front of the bus. Oh, no. The, it, it jumped into the road, and the bus was going 60 miles an hour, and it was seven feet from the dog. And I went, ah! And I, you know, and I could see the bus driver who was also like, ah! And in the time between the bus driver seeing the dog... But before he could slam his foot on the brake, the dog saw the bus and accelerated from zero to 60 miles an hour in less than a second. Just, and the thing is, it didn't, it didn't keep moving perpendicular to the bus. It turned and went in the direction the bus was traveling and accelerated away from the, from the bus that was going 45 miles an hour. Like, ex- just took off and accelerated away. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. It was the most stupendous feat of of animal athleticism. And it was when I un, it was when I finally understood what a what a, what these dogs could do. Of course it took me an hour and a half to find the dog. Mm-hmm. Uh but anyway, so that dog we did not we I think sent back to the breeder perhaps to live the rest of his life on a farm. Mm-hmm. Not sure. Uh, then we got a second dog, just a baby, baby puppy. Uh, this dog was a lover, a wonderful, wonderful dog who had some, as it grew up, some awful hip dysplasia where oh, it was never able to walk. Like it sort of, you know, its back legs were like an injured rabbit. It was like he'd been hit by a car, but he just grew up that way. And we nursed this dog for a long time, and it just it, it wanted to please. It was the happiest, most wonderful dog. Uh, but as you know about my mom, she's fairly unsentimental. And that dog went back to the breeder, perhaps to live on a farm. Mm-hmm. And then there was a long period where there were no Borzois again, because we had at least figured out that the the Alaska line was too. It, the Alaska line represented too much inbreeding perhaps from the puppies that my mom had had seeded oh this is like a faulkner story this yeah, is complicated back into the back in the 60s oh, because where were the gosh, po- hoisted by, by our own petard that's right where were the where were the borzois of alaska coming from if not seattle <coughs> and then so we then we went along 
time, and then there, then we got into the Silken Windhound era. <sighs> well, and Gibson was the first, and then Barley, Barley came along, and Barley was the Silken. Barley was a beautiful Silken Windhound. Let's be honest. Uh, and we had Barley for several years. Barley and Gibson, several years, they lived together in harmony. But Barley had Barley had chronic diarrhea. Oh dear, that I, sounds like that's not gonna that will not stand with your mom. I'm guessing. You know, and I know I know that uh, a lot of people try and listen to this program when they're eating breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Yeah, and it's only a matter of time before we say something that will turn you off your food. Chronic means it happens a lot and it's hard to stop. That's right. And so it's not just mom, a little. It's not just a little puddle. It's like oh. Look what uh, barley made. Oh, look here it is. It's more and, like it's more like you just live in a constant state of like, well, when's the next time I'll have to clean this up? Yeah, and it made the it made the backyard fairly uninhabitable, and also, oh, but it was, it, it was taking place mostly outside. Uh, yeah, for the most part, but it was, I think it was self perpetuating, right? If you, whatever is causing the diarrhea, if you're pooping in the yard and then, as barley would do, just yeah. like just lounging, uh. On top of these uh, poop piles. Yeah, it's in it's in the biome now. It's everywhere. Right. It's like that's it's why right. you got to wash your hands. That's exactly but right. But dogs don't generally wash their hands. So he never got better over the course of four or five years. And as you know, as Poor as regular barley. listeners of this program will know, my mom is fairly unsentimental. And Barley was a lovely guy, and dare I say it, a member of our family. And then one day Barley was gone, and we were like, "What?" My mom said, well, I just, you know, dog was never well. Whoa. And so uh, it went back to the breeder. She's, she's, uh, she's a tough lady. She's a tough lady. Back to the breeder. Now, there's a lot of words we've used here. Live on a farm, mm. back to the breeder. Mm. Uh, are, are these euphemisms? Live on a farm is a euphemism. That's, back, I, I learned that's a euphemism, yeah. yeah. Back to the breeder is not. My mom will, even after four or five years of owning a purebred dog, We'll take it back to the breeder. From, is that just something where you keep the receipt, or how does that work? No, the breeders all know who the dogs were. Oh, and she's probably kind of famous. Like you'd want it. You want to take. We want to take her. 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 Uh, uh, Whippet hound. What's it called? Yeah, Whippet hound. No, the wind beautiful sil- the, the silken windhound. Silken windhound. Yeah. Uh, and my mom was just like, basically, she would go back to the breeder and say, "You have sold me a defective dog." Right. And. I have no way of knowing what their negotiation is like or what the breeder's response is. But, you know, a lot of these breeders are running puppy mills or oh, they've got yeah. 10 but acres But the, the good there. ones are probably like Nordstrom where they'll take stuff back even if it wasn't theirs. <laughs> yeah. You say, listen, we're not selling curs here. This is going to be, this is a good-ass dog and the dog has, dog has papers. And it's the papers, I think, that, that keep the dog from going to live on a farm. The p- papers are like a dog receipt, but, but, but also it's sort of like a baby book. Yeah, and I think the breeder wants to wants to know wants to maintain the her knowledge of the line. Oh, the the bloodline. That's right. So mm-hmm. she wants to keep track of all the of all the dogs, and if if um, if the dog is defective, mm-hmm. she will. Re- That's good to know. That'll that'll change that'll change the way you make them have intercourse, right? Exactly. I think. Right. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, Barley was not defective except for this pooping. And also, Barley was a smaller dog than Gibson, but he believed he was a bigger dog. He Aww. was always dominating Gibson. And socially, in my mom's house, of course, as you know, there's only one top dog. Mm-hmm. And she gets up early. And, and Barley always 
he, when he was on a walk, he always inched his nose one centimeter in front of my mom's knee Mm-mm, at its leading idea, edge. Bad idea. It's a bad <laughs> idea. It's a bad idea. But Barley was irrepressible and could never. It's not that he didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Oh, he understood. He understood. He just wasn't going to get with the program. And so. I can't believe she's kept you as long as she did. Well, that's the thing. But, you know, I try and get with the program. Right. Went, Straighten up and fly right. <laughs> I don't, my nose doesn't go in front of her knee. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I don't want her to. I don't want her to zap me on the back of the neck and go ah ah. It's interesting though that, sh- gosh, your mom is so interesting. Um, there's something to this dog thing though, because she kept at it. See, a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people like like uh, you know normal people. You, they get a dog and they are inexperienced with dogs. Could be any kind of pet. It could be an AI. Uh, maybe it's a big screen TV. But you get something in your life. You don't really understand what's, what's, what's happening with it. Something goes bad enough, and it's not even a question. You are now out of that business. Right. Right? So, for example, like a lot of people, you know, you get, you get a dog. The dog bites somebody. Not only is that dog going to live on a farm, but, but you're no done way. With dogs. We're done with dogs. We are never having that again. I'm, I'm just, I'm interested that your mom seems to have some kind of stake in this. And with this particular bloodline, this particular breed-ish uh, area of, of Borzoi-like dogs, was now is, was Gibson the end of the line for her? Has she, she hasn't got another one, has she? No. So at the, at the, at the last, right, my mom, this is the thing. Gibson was a constant companion for my mom for 13 years. Uh-huh. Spent, I mean, they were never apart. And they were in this strange marriage where the, they kind of d- didn't really like each other maybe i mean they tolerated each other gibson adored her uh worshiped her but she never quite did what he wanted all gibson wanted was to was to sleep on the couch and eat spaghetti yeah and my mom and never he liked, let, he liked to he liked walks too right and he loved walks so they would go on walks and they loved that activity together but she never let him eat spaghetti, and she never let him get on the couch. Why not? Uh, because you, because it's her couch, first oh, of all. That's true. And you don't want dog hair on the couch, and you don't want the dog to think that it belongs on the couch. This is that couch in the back, yeah. by the back window. That's right. And you don't feed the dog spaghetti because you're not a ding-a-ling, right? Dogs <laughs> I, had don't a eat cat, sp- I had a cat that loved spaghetti. Well, that's even weirder. Oh, cat- yeah. Well, and the cat we've got now, uh, I uh, made some late-night macaroni and cheese. Uh, a few weeks ago, I set it down for a second. I I, I, I turned back to the TV. I'm sitting in the dark and I hear. Wow. I've never seen this cat devour food like the one time I put macaroni on the floor. She I, went bananas. Now, my understanding, and I may be wrong, but it is that cats are pure carnivores and they don't want to eat anything that isn't that isn't meat. I don't know. I don't my, think the cats have like any kind of vegetable portion of their diet. We should ask John Syracuse about this. This might be an adaptation or an evolution. Mm. Oh, be, oh you think that they might have evolved? To they eat might have evolved. Well, like even since we got the cat, she might have evolved a little bit. You never know. Yeah, we should ask true. about that. But that's no, true. I don't know. I can't explain reason. why they would want pasta. Maybe it's a, I, I, you know, these are salty pastas. It might not be right. the pasta. It might be, as with humans, it's, you know, pasta, let's be honest, it's a conveyance for butter and salt, like so many things in life. Well, and also, let me, I'm sorry to the people who have persisted in trying to eat their lunch or dinner, Yeah, but this has always been a feeling of mine. What does pasta most resemble from the natural world? Uh, worms. Or? Uh, 
is entrails. It, oh, guts. It looks like guts. And that's why well, we put it love differently, it. Put differently, you watch a zombie show and you see some guts and you think, wow, that, that looks a lot like lasagna. Yeah, that's right. And so the reason mm. I think that <gasps> oh, we love boy. pasta is that it reminds us uh, in our primitive mind of eating the best part of a kill, mm-hmm. which is the entrails. So we sit down to a big plate of spaghetti with meat sauce, and we're for, like, um, for, um, for, um, for most car- carnivores, I bet entrails are, are comfort food. Entrails are the best because they're also full of uh, of grains and other nutritious. Oh, things. I see your point because it's like a double meal. You get like uh, you get you get a meal inside the meal. You get like That's a little right. prize. You get to eat whatever they ate. They're basically and not that never to, occurred to me, John. That's brilliant. Not to go too deep into this, but no. what are sausages? Oh, sausages are like a built-to-purpose entrail. They're stuffed. Ent- they're basically. They're literally. They're literally uh, intestines mm-hmm. uh, stuffed with other parts of the animal. It's it's okay. it's it's pretty it's pretty grotesque if you really think about it. Which is our natural thing. You yeah. kill you kill the thing, and everybody jumps around. You rip it open, and the first thing there is basically a pile of sausages. I enjoy sausage, right? Except mm-hmm. they're sausages filled with whatever the antelope was most recently eating. So I think that a cat might think when it encounters macaroni and cheese that here are some delicious entrails of something. And are, are cats colorblind? Hmm. I'm sorry, color, color sight impaired? Uh, hmm. I believe John Circusa. Yeah. Uh, Circusa. Circusa. Uh, might might uh, know better whether cats have evolved to be colorblind. Oh, because it's, it's an adaptation. That's right. In order to better see prey in the night. Oh, like those like those goggles the SEAL Team 6 wears. SEAL Team 6 goggles. So basically, if you're in SEAL Team 6, you're basically simulating being a cat. That's right. You put on those goggles, and suddenly you can see everything better. And you're you can, simulating being in a being a cat in a in a world that has been terraformed under a green sun mm, mm. or a green, a green moon. Let's call it a green moon. Green moon, sure, sure. It's it's reflecting the light off the green sun. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay, all right. Or I, it's the green, green of, sun hits the green moon. You get you get double green, and now that's why you need cat cat, cat goggles. Cat goggles. Or or it is a I'm sorry, not a science fiction universe, oh, but a speculative. speculative fiction universe where the moon on this planet is actually made of green cheese. Oh boy. So the sun could be any color. The light is reflecting off the green cheese. And as you know, because we're receiving the green light, it means that actually every other color was being reflected and the green was the one that wasn't being reflected. Is that because of refraction, John? It well, it's sort of like a, it's a form of, it's, is it a form of refraction? It's like a prism. Oh. But it's like it's like a prism except it's an innocent project innocence project for light. It's an innocence project for light. They're using DNA to find just the green light. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense. I'm glad that we had the I'm glad we worked through this ourselves. I think we're helping a lot of people today. But you, I mean, imagine now. Imagine being in Seal, Seal Team Six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, you got a mission. You, that's right. You're, you've got a mission. But maybe the U.S. Navy is training these guys because they're aware of a planet that has these conditions, and Seal Team guys are actually astronauts, astronauts in training, and they're not even aware of it. Oh, that would make a really good speculative fiction novel. 
right? Oh, see, that's so smart. It says again, we're back. It's like Ender's Game, right? We can't really tell you. Spoiler alert: We can't really tell you what you're training for, and you mm-hmm. may actually be doing the mission. Check it out when yeah. you're training, or you're, think thinking, you're training. You think that you are in Somalia in the middle of the night to kill a warlord. Thank you for your service. But really, UFOs are oh, part of a yeah. secret one-world government that's under the North Pole, and they come from a planet. That's why they have big, big almond-shaped eyes. They come from a planet where the moon is made of green cheese. Right, right. And this group of highly trained soldiers is actually the first astronaut corps to return to the UFO home planet. Okay, I got it. And here's the thing. We call it terraforming, which is very Earth-centric. They might be verdeforming. So they're going to find a way to make our planet green because that's how they roll. Like greener, not, not, not that fake green like we've got, but like a real green, like a, like a green cheese. Maybe they're going to do that. Maybe they're going to terraform the moon to turn it from... Luniforming. Luniform, uh, which is a great kind I of... I love a man uh, in a luniform. That's right. It's a, it's a sports bra. Uh, but, <laughs> sports bra. Sports bra. <laughs> lives and separates. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> automobile, automobile. <laughs> money machine, counterfeit money machine. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And he was polite. <laughs> How many times have we watched that? <laughs> Not enough. I'm watch today. Oh, I've never been happier than sitting around in our underwear watching that. <sighs> you so know, the salad we, days. The salad days. We hadn't even discovered the mighty boosh. Mm-mm. Oh, that's a hell of a show. Trapped in cabinets. Trapped in cabinets. Um, I'm. I'm starting. I'm now. The <clears throat> Steel Team Stick yes. story is starting to worry me. Okay. Also, what? remind me to come back to Crayolas because I think I may have discovered some of the greatest pages on Wikipedia. And they're about Crayola colors, but please continue. No, no, no. I, the, you have you have just dropped uh, some major. You have dropped a major diarrhea of science, right? Chronically, they call, it, they I, call it the chronic. I want to. Whenever somebody says I have found the best part of Wikipedia, you have my undivided attention because I spend more time on Wikipedia than I do with my own family. Yeah, well, that's, that's as it should be. I mean, you got more to learn from Wikipedia. Have you ever donated to Wikipedia when they do those fundraising things? I know this is going to be embarrassing, and we shouldn't really No, I give money to things, but I haven't given money to them, and, and the reason is really terrible. Mm-hmm. I, I hate those ads. They make me, they make me angry. And yeah. it's terrible, because I use it's maybe the site that I use more than any other full stop. So I, I should. I should do that. I, I use my money the following way. I let the market decide. When an entrepreneur comes up with an idea, mm-hmm. I, will, I, will let, I will, my money is like, well, it's the market, Right. And so Wikipedia has not successfully entrepreneured me yeah. into, into that well, out of my money, right? They entrepreneur you right out of your money. Wikipedia hasn't. It's like NPR. I just turn it off when it asks me for things. Well, I'll tell you a funny story there. Our, our, our mutual friend, Scott Simpson, he, um, he gives money to all kinds of stuff. Like he'll just sit up, sit up. He used to, time was that he would just sit up at night drinking and just every night he'd just donate more money to fix a kid's palate in Iraq. Like he's, wow. very, he's a very generous guy. You know, you can do that for a very small amount of money. You can fix a kid's palate. Yeah. It's a yeah. really nice project. And I, I give to things like that, but he, he, he inserted a thought technology for me that I, I have trouble unthinking now, which is, you know, this is boring, but, but you know, PBS, it's the kind of things that they run as their like marquee programs. Let me put it this way. 
uh, early 1990s, when I would, uh, when I was very into uh, getting very, getting very into public media, very into public radio, very into public TV. You know what they would show during during the fun drives? They would show something they didn't usually show, which was a marathon of things like Faulty Towers. Oh yeah, right. So that's what got me into Faulty Towers. And uh, I remember actually, I was recording. This is this is so dorky, but I remember recording Faulty Towers, and the marathon was on, and I called to donate, and I had a had a VHS for years of my name running across the street screen because <gasps> I, I donated. Really? Really? That used to be a big deal to be on TV. Yeah, did did uh, was it like that bank of old people answering phones, and then one of them was talking to you? No. Oh, yeah, I did that. I mean, I did, that was not. You didn't see me though. No, because I was at home. Right, but right, but right. but but it was still very much the day where you'd have usually the same thing as today. You'd have a man and a woman sitting there. Now today they pre-tape them and they buy them in packages. Oh. So and it'll but it'll be things like uh, whatever Suze Orman is. The yeah. leopard skin money lady, there's mm-hmm. her. You get things like the brain training stuff, all this brain training stuff. Or you get doo-wop. There's always a lot of doo-wop. Sure. And I don't know, but even like KQED, KQED's main, KQED has the largest listenership for a given public radio station in the United States. Really? It's, yeah, it's really quite large. If you I take thought it was a, WGN in Boston. Uh, I don't think so. WBEZ. Boston, Mass. O two one three four five eight eight two three hundred. Anyway, but you know the trouble is when you, the, those brain training things, which I have to say have all, for a long time seemed kind of like BS. It's one thing to say, "Oh, Grandma does Sudoku," and and she seems a little smarter. And so another thing to say, like BS or PBS, P- P- peanut butter and shit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm looking at the page. I sent you those links. If you click oh, in, uh, wait, in the sorry, Skype. Sorry, sorry, but sorry. But I sent you a link to the list of Crayola crayon colors. Oh, is this is this something where the flesh turns into flesh or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's stuff like that, too. My body is the then, flesh? And you got, well, there's one I saw one time. I remember it was like an engineering diagram of the changes over the years. And this one's more textual. Oh, my but God. This is so beautiful. Isn't it amazing? Oh, I didn't know anything about this, Merlin. Oh, there's a color called macaroni and cheese introduced oh, in 1993. Look, look at this. Robin's egg blue. How, you know, I think what you just did was you just uh, you just foreshadowed my next collection. Oh, that's a great look at that. Look at that image, huh? When you love to have some of those in your house. Can you imagine what that would be like? To Can you just imagine? Have, oh, let's imagine. Look at these. Look at these typefaces too. Permanent geranium lake. Two, three, four. <laughs> <laughs> I this is like, a song. These all sound like out of my voice songs. I feel like permanent geranium lake is some uh, is some natural feature on the on the the luniform. Oh, once it's been luniformed, yeah, sure. Permanent per- geranium lake. Oh, Maybe you know, I took you. I took you off that. First of all, I have to say, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna be an UFO, it's a good idea if you have the technology, and I assume you do, to build your base under the North Pole. Because who's gonna check? Who's gonna That's check right. there? That's right. They don't even dust that. Like you, you don't, you don't. I mean, how many people are at the North Pole right now? Let's find out. Counting, uh, counting the guys from Top Gear, ca- counting Jeremy Clarkson. I'm going to say f- three humans. I'm so. I would love it if he just stayed there. Three humans and seven hundred thousand UFOs under the under the ice cap. Uh, Alexa, how many people are at the North Pole right now? Nothing. Oh wow, that baffled Alexa. Try again. I'll try it with. I'll try it with Siri. How many people are at the North Pole right now? Uh-huh. I'm going to say hmm. 12. Siri, is it raining? Uh, oh, there's a place called North Pole, Alaska. 
And that has a population of 2,178. Now, I've been to North Pole, Alaska. That, seem, that's, that seems, that's, that's some shoddy naming, John. No, 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 no. The reason that North Pole, Alaska is named what it's named is who sends letters to the North Pole? Oh, children. That's right. Yeah. And if a children sends... Ch- ch- children if, and charities. Right. If a children sends a letter to the North Pole, where does it go? See, I, I assume they just throw them away. Right, except they don't. They send them to North Pole, Alaska. You think they still do that? Sure, there are kids all around. I mean, think about all the kids. All the kids. If a, ch- in if a children, if a children writes a letter, it mm-hmm. goes through the postal system, and somehow that gets conveyed to North Pole, Alaska. That's right. Oh, that's tremendous. That's right. If uh, uh, you know, do they know it's Christmas in Africa? Yes, they do. They know. They just don't care because they don't really observe it there. They know now because of Bob Geldof. Right. And what? It, what <laughs> Thank you for your service. It's right in the song. Send right. your letters to right. North Pole, Alaska. I think it's. I think it was sung by Willie Nelson. You let in your letters. <laughs> you let in light and you banish hate. That's right. Let it. Let it in. Mm-hmm. One of these colors. One of these Crayola colors. I I'm not even. I'm not even out of the reds. Mm-mm. Dark Venetian red. Yeah. How do they know? How do they know what dark Venetian red looks like? I guess in some ways they get to be the arbiter. But look at that. Somebody made a distinction of thistle versus orchid. Macaroni and cheese yeah. looks very much like the color that we used to call flesh. It oh, doesn't right. really, yes. It doesn't look like macaroni and cheese, though. It looks like macaroni and cheese that somebody put some ketchup in. What are, what are these from? Hang on. Oh, 1903. Oh, they could name the shit out of some colors in 1903. Dude. Van Dyke As- Brown? Asparagus? <laughs> I got to go make some Van Dyke Brown. Oh, you got burnt or raw umber. Yeah. Inchworm. Inchworm. Mountain meadow. Flesh tint. There it is. Oh, flesh. Flesh. Flesh for fantasy. Permanent Ooh. magenta. Flesh. Flesh. Flesh for fantasy. There's your permanent geranium lake. Oh, look at hold, that. Hold on. Yeah. Right in the. Okay. See, now I'm starting to get suspicious. We're okay. looking through the yellows. Then we come down to the greens. Then we come down to the blues. And right in the middle between turquoise blue and sky blue. There is a color which is the darkest black blue in the world, completely out of place uh-huh. in this color wheel, and it's called outer space. What? Let me find that. What year look is that? Well, outer, outer space, space. nineteen ninety eight to present. Basically, oh, look at after that. after we became after the UFOs revealed themselves. I don't think I've ever seen that color before. Outer space. I'm not sure I'm even really fully experiencing that color because I look at it and as I stare at it, it's kind of black, it's kind of blue, it's kind of green. Right. Kind of it black. does not belong between turquoise blue and sky blue. It belongs down by midnight blue. It belongs b- between midnight blue and navy blue. Why is it where it is? Mm. If, if not, if not as, a, as, as an indicator, as a trigger, maybe, mm-hmm. to remind us who's oh, really in charge. Oh, I see. It's 1998. Let's give them a little shot of what outer space looks like. Exactly. Let's get them exactly. talking about this. Let's get them talking about it. We've got, mm-hmm. we've got the first astronaut corps in training. Eventually, we're going to do the reveal. And when, who's going to do the reveal? This is why this is why the Republican Congress won't consider a new Supreme Court justice. They won't, they won't even meet with them. They won't even meet with them because they know that we're coming close to reveal day. Reveal day is coming. Reveal day is coming. Almost every one of these names, not everyone, but many of these names introduced in the 90s, especially the mid to late 90s, uh, they, 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 many of them do sound like something from Urban Dictionary. <laughs> is there a th- color called Neo Maxi Zoomed Weeby? I don't think so, but you can get, uh, oh, let's see, you got Mango Tango. 
which sounds like a Sammy Hagar record. <laughs> Mango Tango. <laughs> this got- guitar can shoot the balls off of a bull from 100 <laughs> yards. I don't know where they come from, but they sure do come. Wow. Banana Mania. Uh, right. All of these sound like drinks at a Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> uh, Wild Blue Yonder. That totally sounds. These do. Purple Mountains Majesty. Yep. Yep. I just feel like I'm at. I feel like I'm at a cabana in Key West. Can I get you? Can I? Uh, can I uh, cool, get you a fresh jazzberry jam? <laughs> How about a razzmatazz? Have you tried a razzmatazz? <laughs> oh, you know what's good. I'm still deciding between the Movilis and the Pink Sherbert and the Fuzzy Wuzzy. These all sound like drinks. Desert Sand. No, that doesn't sound like a drink. Timberwolf, Antique Brass, Antique Brass. Antique Brass. They say, oh, there is a Razzmatazz. Razzmatazz. Razzmatazz, Razzmatazz. is a, what would you call it, like a hot pink? What do you call that? Yeah, I'd say hot pink. But look up there. Jazzberry Jam is really, I mean, are these drag queen names? <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, give a nice warm welcome to Eggplant. Jazzberry Jam. <laughs> Uh, or yeah, or are they are they drink names? And then here we get down below the pinks. First of all, eggplant doesn't belong under Jazzberry Jam either. Yeah, you should it, edit this. You should edit this page. We get down below Carmine and Blush and Tickle Me Pink. Ooh. Oh right, you got. Oh, I see. You got big, you got Pig Pink, Pig Pink. You got Blush. Right. Tickle Me Pink, Movilis, Pink well, Sherbert. Is that supposed to be Sherbet? How do you say it? Well, it should be Sherbet, but they I would say Sherbert. They have it listed as Sherbert. Oh, listen to this. Sherbert and would then, be a sweet name for a dog. If Sherbet or Sherbert? Sherbert. Oh, Sherbert. Sherbert's would be a little a good bit name. fancy. Sherbert. Oh, Sherbert. That would be a great name for a son. Oh, <laughs> little this, Sherbert. This is my boy Sherbert. <laughs> and people would be like, what? Uh-huh. But no, if you look at if you look at Pink Sherbert, you look over in the metadata, yeah. it was formerly known as Brink Pink. Brink? Pink. You Brink think that's pink. that's considered um, insensitive to the pink community or something? Uh, oh, it was formerly known as Brink Pink between 1998 and 2005. So sometime in 2005, somebody at Crayola was like, Brink Pink's not working. Let's call it Pink Sherbert. Fuzzy sh- Wuzzy used to be sh- called Fuzzy Wuzzy Brown, which sounds well, like a question. Uh, fuzzy Wuzzy wasn't very fuzzy, was he? Mm-mm. But then we get down into this bottom part of the color wheel where all these colors just don't belong to each don't belong. It seems like sometimes when you get into the browns and the grays, people get confused about how to continue. Well, I do this because where you, would you uh, put manatee? Manatee is a kind of blue gray. I'd put it. I'd put it right off of Key West, right mm-hmm. with the rest of these drinks. They're very they're gentle giants. I feel like oh, and we're not even down to razzle dazzle rose uh-uh. and blizzard blue. Wow. But, but so I arrange my shirts by color. Did you know this? If you, I, I didn't, I didn't. But uh, without respect to collar type or French cuff, you go, you go totally by color. You like those those hipsters with their books. Oh yeah, except I hate that. When I walk into somebody's house and their bookshelves are arranged by color, I want to kick them. That's a, it's. A, have you seen the, the the new thing where people put them in backwards? To, with, so the, with, the, with the pages facing out. What what is the point of that? It's it's really telling to me. It's telling that they bought their books by the pound. Yeah, basically, you could yeah. buy books by the foot. Like yeah. if Ikea sold books by the foot, you could buy them. And you're certainly not going to read them. They're mainly just things to fill up your Billy Bookcase. A foot of books to fill up the Billy Bookcase. You know, Jonathan Colton family arranged their books by color at one point. And I challenged him on it. Yeah. I was like, you better explain this or I'm going to kick you right in the knee. And he said, I can find any book on that shelf. Hmm. And so I had him turn around and I named a couple of books and he turned and went right to him. Do you think we're being insensitive? 
I don't know. I bet you there. I bet you we have listeners that are looking at their color coordinated bookshelf right now and wondering whether they made a mistake, or or whether that's really something that they're going to stick by. It's it's a little cute. But I arrange my shirts by color, and I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day where I was like, "Do you do you imagine that I should put my short sleeve shirts in with the long sleeve shirts?" Because the short sleeve shirts belong there according to the color wheel principle, even though they're a totally different kind of shirt. This person advised me, yes, they thought that the shirts, the short sleeves belonged mixed in with the long sleeves in order to have them arranged by color. And I did it, and then I hated it. And I took all the short sleeve shirts out and arranged them by color on a separate rack. Uh, I... I think there's something to be learned from how libraries were run for a long time, Mm -hmm. which is that the books are put onto the shelves in a very specific order that never wavers. And if you want some flexibility in how you find stuff, you use the card catalog. So you go to subject, you go to author, (laughs) you could get a CSC also or something like that. I don't think that should be happening tactically at the, at the book level. Now, at the shirt level, for most people, I'd say they could get away with that. In your case, you have a fair amount of shirts, right? Sadly, I have, I have a ridiculous amount of shirts. And this is, it's beyond fair amount. It's, beyond it's an unfair un- amount. It's beyond unfair amount mm. uh, to redonkulous. It's even past ridiculous. It's yeah. all the way to redonkulous, which I'll notice is one of these Crayola colors. Redonkulous. And also would be a great name for a kid. Oh, that's sweet. Cerulean. Cerulean would be a pretty name for a girl. Ooh, Cerulean. Cornflower. Cerulean would be a great name for a girl that you were sending to to live under the North Pole as a kind of emissary. Oh, that's a good idea. Right? Or like, she like doesn't some, have a last name. She, we, she's just called Cerulean. Cerulean. And she walks up and down the halls in a pencil skirt carrying oh, a, some kind of uh, like arm load of... of uh, she of got, her hair, got her hair in a bun. Big in glasses. a bun or some kind of some kind of uh, what was that what was that uh, uh, movie with uh, Bruce Willis where the um, girl had orange hair? Oh, uh, Lulu Dallas Multipass. M- uh, no, Lula, yeah, that's yeah, uh, it's a Fifth Element. Oh, Fifth Element. Right. Lulu Dallas Multipass. Yeah, so it's a kind of Fifth Element scene where Cerulean uh, uh, has like crazy hair, uh-huh. and she's carrying an arm. But it's not full- blue hair. It's that'd not be, blue. That'd be too on the nose. Yeah. She might, like, have, uh, she might have she might have maximum red purple or mulberry or, or thistle hair. Yeah, it's well, it's lesbian hair. Let's be honest. The pe- the best hair in the world is lesbian hair. I want to get my hair cut wherever the lesbians go. Exactly. The it's astonishing. It's astonishing how good lesbians' hair is. It is always the best hair. Even the do, worst. Do lesbians have thicker hair, John? It seems to me like a lot of lesbians have a nice thick head. Like you know, you and I, we both suffer from this problem. We have we have a dense amount of hair, but we have skinny hairs, densely skinny packed. Hairs. I think even the skinny-haired lesbians have better haircuts than we do. Uh, it's, it's just, it doesn't, it's... I've never I want to say it doesn't seem hair. fair, because God, God love them, they've been through a lot. They deserve the good hair. But could you share a little love at this point? I mean, you know, it's 2016. Can I get a decent haircut? Well, just make a book where it is explained. Just, just make some kind of book where you explain what you're doing, why it is that you have the best... I'm that, not even that, asking for a phone number. I, I'm, saying, I'm saying just give me an idea how to even approach this. That's right. Give me an idea. Just share your wisdom. It's not, it, it isn't like thrifting. It's not where you go somewhere, and if it didn't work out, you're fine. I'm, I'm out of the game for two months. If, if I don't make the right decision, I'm certainly not going to have like Katie Lang hair. Well, and this is the thing about lesbian hair. It is good across the spectrum, right? It's not all you the same You don't see haircut. bad lesbian haircuts much anymore. 
So this is what I'm saying about even Cerulean. even the, even the, the typical like butch like flat top. They get a better flat top than I could they get. Get a better flat top. It's denser hair. I don't. I don't think it's about the hair. I think it's about the uh, science or the speculation. You think they're working for the UFOs? You think they they might be working with Cerulean? I think that Cerulean definitely has a lesbian haircut. Just uh, regardless okay. of sexual preference. Because right. she's orientation, because she's got, gender. Let's set those things aside. She has you go. You go. That's that's a goddamn lesbian haircut, and God love her. Because she's got UFO technology, right? She can. She has. She might have taught them. She might have taught them how to hair form. I don't know about that. It's, <laughs> it's been. I think. I think lesbian hair has been. You're going to go right past hair form. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even hear hair form. Uh, so Cerulean has a clipboard. Static. She's got a clipboard. No, 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 not a clipboard. I think she's got an arm full of Kindles. Right, oh, she's got, I see. She's got like nine Kindles, and she's cradling them like a like a bunch of baby ducks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she's walking down a hall, an ice hall, under the ocean, and in, and in a pencil skirt. In a pencil skirt, and it's just like some scene out of uh, out of a a Will Ferrell movie or whatever. Whoever the Will mm-hmm. is that has the the bad kids that everybody hates. Oh, um, sure, sure, sure. You got the guy. That's the guy from Men in Black. Uh, the, the Fresh Prince. Men in African American. Uh, so he's walking along. He's walking along a hall, and there's a bunch of ufos of different kinds. A guy that looks like a rhinoceros. The band from the cantina scene. Oh, uh, right, right, right. You get the hammerhead guy, and she's just a human with killer hair carrying an armload of Kindles. That's just, she's not a furry at all, though. A furry? No, a, but she, she, doesn't may, have, she doesn't have a fox tail or anything. Uh, she may. Uh, she's not a furry, but she may have a rabbit tail butt plug. Because, because that's what they do now, right? That's just what they do. You can't. That's, that's for me. That's that's not for you. That's for me. This is this is this is for me. I'm gonna. I can do my work. I'm not here to be judged. I got an excellent haircut, and I and I got a, I got I got a butt plug that gives me a tail. And, yeah, that's right. And I cut a little hole in the back of my pencil skirt so that my rabbit tail butt plug can stick out. But I'm not a furry. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm just doing this for me. This doesn't. I'm not part of some subculture. This isn't like a yellow handkerchief in my right back back pocket, or a yellow handkerchief in your butt. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so when I'm organizing my shirts, I always get down here, just like on this Crayola color wheel. Yeah, I get down to the to the to the backside, and I don't know where to put the greens. You know I what think I, mean? I have trouble processing greens because I, I get a little confused about the different greens. Because here they put yellow, they put, they start at red and then they put, then they go to orange, yellow, green, right? That's the, that's the Roy Jabiv. Roy Jabiv, yeah. But I start with white because where does, I mean, you have a lot of white shirts if you have as many shirts as me. And where do you fit the whites? In? I think in the alphabet of colors, you start with white and, 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 with, and with black. You start with white, but you can't immediately go from white to red. You have to go from white to very I, I, light yellow. I'm feeling extremely old-fashioned right now because I feel like there's almost exactly one kind of thing that should be organized by color. And that would be conveyances like crayons that are used for imbuing color onto other things. Mm-hmm. Organizing those things by color makes a lot of sense. Organizing most other things, that is just not the way my brain works. Well, it's, I, I, I do it based on utility, like the way I would organize a kitchen, which is m- mostly not much at all. But like, I always put the cutlery in this one area. I, the high-frequency non-knives go in this drawer. The lower-frequency non-knives go in this other drawer. 
And if anybody changes that system, it's just very off-putting to me. So a non-knife is like a spatula or a spoon that has holes in it? Right. You get a slotted spoon. Slotted you could have spoon. the uh, the temperature thing. You got the silicon bands. Any of the things that you need in the, all the various cooking apparatus. But I would never think about organizing those. I mean, even, even stuff that's... The, this is the problem. This is like one of those design kinds of things. It's like something that looks well-organized is not necessarily going to be a, a useful thing. Oh, no, wait a minute. Go on. Well, you know, there's these trends that people go through, like the whole knolling thing. Like, I'm going to lay things out in this grid and it's going to oh. be... And like, I understand that. You know, if that makes you happy, like that, that to me is like a cat butt plug. Like, God love you. Have fun with that. That's some Adam Savage stuff, though. He's a he's a knoller. He's a knoller. Yeah. I've seen him knoll. But you know what Adam Savage does is he makes stuff. Yeah, that's true. He makes stuff just to knoll it. We watch uh, We watched a show where he made a cannon out of a water heater uh, yesterday. Who hasn't made a cannon out of a water heater? I've thought about it. But what kind of what kind of cannonball do you shoot out of a water heater? I don't know. We skipped over to the dark night after that. It feels it feels to me like what you're doing when you make a cannon out of a water heater is you are shooting piglets. Oh, okay. Right? I, I suppose. In you've the seen section- the pictures. You've seen the pictures of the guy that goes out and knolls parking lots, right? Where he moves oh. the cars around until they're all in the right spot. I th- you know, that stuff does not tickle my brain the, tickle, the way it tickles a lot of other people's brains. What about people that talk like this on the internet and have, like, little mouth sounds? Oh, you're talking about people who are making smacky noises. Little smacky noises. Yeah. Does that tickle your brain? It's ASCII. ASCII 2? It's like ASCII art. ASCII art. You know what's interesting is in the section called Multicultural, section 2.5 of the list of Crayola crayon colors, there's a section called Multicultural. Really? <clears throat> I think it's interesting for several reasons. Because, uh, well, let's take it as red. Let's say what we haven't been saying, which is that for our youth, for our crayon, our, our prime crayon using years, I suspect that you and I both had one crayon in anything over, probably starting at the 16, but definitely the 48, certainly in the 64. You had yeah. a, a crayon, if memory serves, it was called Flesh. It was called Flesh. And the thing is, it, it, was, the, it was the flesh color of somebody you really wouldn't like. It was like somebody from like North Georgia. It was, mm-hmm. it, you look like a peach. Oh yeah, and then at a certain point, it was determined, I think, very you know intelligently that the, hey, you know that's 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 a little bit uh, that's a little bit limited. That's, that's sort of normative. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of other kinds of flesh. Right. I don't know. I may be misusing the word normative because I have used it incorrectly on purpose for so long. I know it's hard to go back. So yeah. in 1992, Crayola released a set of eight multicultural crayons in italics, which yeah. quote come in an assortment of skin hues. I'd like to try that. I come in that. <laughs> give, give a shot. <laughs> Oh, oh, wait a minute. Hmm? Wait a minute. What's that called? Oh, I'd like to come in a variety of skin <laughs> hues. Oh, boy. I'm open. Oh, boy. Keep your foxtail on. Oh, boy. Eight colors used came from their standard list of colors, and the set was, for the most part, well-received, though there has been some criticism. Footnote 14. Now, what's interesting <laughs> is, these are overtly, these are called multicultural. I don't know if it's yeah. said on the box, this is for coloring people who aren't white or aren't Caucasian. Right. But here's what the colors are called. Apricot. Black. <laughs> I'm black, choking. black is pound sign zero 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 zero. That is true black in internet terms. You got okay. burnt sienna. You got mahogany, which is a kind of a reddish. You got huh. peach, sepia, tan, and then full on white. Isn't that kind of interesting? But they didn't call them. They didn't call them like uh, Palestinian or right Ethiopian. Yeah, or Cree. 
or or what? You know what I'm saying? It's interesting mm-hmm. that they still gave it these colors, even though this is the multicultural edition. I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, I feel like 1992 was a pretty fraught year in political correctness. Boy, it sure was. I was right in the center of it. You know, I was in college still because I was in college from 1987 to 2007. <laughs> Teen. <laughs> uh, you're so close. But in you basically 90, just got to go fill out a form and you're done. In 92, uh, I was. I mean, those were the. That's third generation feminism. We were really going at each other then. I remember the first time I ever heard that phrase. It was an interview with your Instagram buddy, Michael Stipe, on uh, MTV. And for, uh, it was around that time. It was I think maybe in the late 80s. But he was the first person I ever heard use the phrase politically correct. Michael, Michael Stipe. Yeah. I mean, I've heard, I heard it since then lots of times. But he's the yeah. first person I ever heard that I remember ever using that phrase. It goes in and out of, uh, in and out of fashion. <clears throat> and he was using it in kind of a meta way. Yeah. We were saying, yeah, well, that's, that's the kind of thing that we would say today is not really politically correct. Right. Zing. And I mean, I, I don't have a, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm disinterested and uninterested in this, but uh, that's the first time. In and out of love. Mm-mm-mm-mm. So I think, I think the reason that you have to call these uh, colors apricot and mahogany <clears throat> is that even within uh, various uh, cultures, ethnic groups, there's a lot of variation in skin tone. So if you were to say Ethiopian, there's going to be a lot of people in Ethiopia that that doesn't look like. Well, like our friend Grant, who's African-American. Like our, yeah, that's right. From Africa. He's, he's, a, he's one of the whitest people I've ever met. He uh, comes from German aristocracy, yeah. and he's from Africa. Yeah. Or like John Boyega, the, the wonderful actor from Star Wars. He's kind of sick of people calling him African-American. He's like, well, no, I'm from England. Aha. Quit, quit, quit doing that. Well, or John Sercusa. John Sercusa. Who, has who, uh, who had no Italian. I mean, he's a totally Italian guy, but they didn't even speak Italian in his household. Oh, is that right? They didn't yeah. speak Italian because, there were, because it was that immigrant thing where the grandmother wanted their kids to assimilate? Uh, I think that, yeah, we talked about this on a different program. I can I give you one thought on race and culture? Oh, oh boy. I have a thought on race and culture, and I, I've been thinking about it a, a fair amount over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about it, for a long time, uh, there have been, let's put it this way, there have been people who said, hey, you know, we should uh, be a little bit cooler about race and stop making it this divide where the divide is important and we make the rules as white people for why that divide is important. Mm. I think in some form or fashion, that's been a lot of the problem for ever. Uh, and, and the thing is, though, even up into the last five or so years, that has still been a real, real struggle. I'm not saying it's not a struggle anymore, but you know what? There's a part of me that thinks that when it comes to uh, treating people of different races, like normal people, treating people of different genders, uh, orientations, et cetera, as people. <laughs> when that was still, when that still felt like a mostly digital thing, like you're, you're white or not white, you're straight or not straight. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. I think that... Binary. Yeah, but then you start meeting people where you're like, I- I'm not even sure why to hate you. Because, you know what I mean? Like, oh, Bruce, uh, Bruce Jenner becomes a woman, which he feels like he's always been, but he's also a Republican who's anti-gay. That is such a mind bomb for people of a certain age that I think they haven't recovered. I think those going beyond those, those whites and, and blacks of getting beyond those uh, apricots and peaches, I think that is, is the terraform that has caused a lot of the change. It's so confusing now that you wouldn't know what racial epithet to call somebody. Right. What are you gonna what, what are you gonna yell at Bruce Jenner or uh, Caitlyn, Caitlyn Jenner well, think about, about that, first? Though, Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, I, I only heard this. I haven't read this, but supposedly Caitlyn Jenner is is a is a very conservative, uh, is very conservative politically, right. and is actually uh, not so into things like gay marriage. 
Well, what's funny now, now is me of five years ago, that would make my brain pop out of my head because that seems so weird that a trans person would be not so into gay marriage. I, I, I've been dealing with this for 20 years because, or, or no, 25, because, uh, you know, I lived in a mostly gay neighborhood and, the, and most of my friends uh, were gay. And Capitol so, Hill is kind of like the Castro of uh, Seattle, right? That's right. And, and, you know, and Seattle and San Francisco had the largest gay populations of any U.S. cities, I think. Hmm. Seattle, a distant second, yeah, but yeah. still a, a mecca. And, you know, my first job in Seattle was working in a gay bar. So I was, I was very much like uh, in tune with the culture. And right about that time, 1992, the rise of the log cabin Republicans, which none of us could parse, right? This is a whole group of, of gay Republicans during an but era so, when, but the, the people they're, they're self-identifying both as publicly gay and publicly Republican. Yeah. Well, and, there, there's probably always been people, like I imagine for a variety of reasons, Cary Grant was probably pretty conservative. Mm. But, but then there's other stuff he maybe didn't want you to know about. I don't think anybody that wore that suit in North by Northwest could be conservative. You mm. know what I'm saying? No, oh, is that right? But, you know, the log cabin Republicans' uh, uh, take on it was, we're just people and we have these, uh, these uh, beliefs and the fact that we're gay is irrelevant to the, These are separate, totally separate things. Yeah, except... The, like they, they're trying to do kind of like the opposite of identity politics almost? Yeah, except that the Republicans were constantly and actively at war with, uh, with gay people. It didn't matter if you were a lo in a log cabin or not. Mm -hmm. So this was one of those things, you know, this is the Jack Tanner uh, and uh, Clarence Thomas problem. So my dad's best friend, of course, Jack Tanner, a uh, federal judge and uh, black uh, and activist, liberal. Um, and when Clarence Thomas was up for, uh, when he was nominated for the Supreme Court, my dad was, my dad and Tanner, who would go to Chinese food restaurants and yell at each other about who did more during World War II, uh, they were yelling at each other. Tanner drove, uh, drove like a duck, you know, like ride the ducks. <laughs> One of those. It's not exactly a car, and it's not exactly a boat. Yeah, he was he was a sergeant. <laughs> he drove uh, a duck, and he drove a duck. Hmm. Uh, but back when the duck was actually a landing craft, and it was a duck full of soldiers, and he was driving it onto Iwo Jima. <laughs> okay. And then my dad, of course, was a pilot uh, shooting. Except they're shooting zeros out of the sky with a sidearm. Sky with a sidearm out the window. <laughs> <laughs> and they would sit in the in the Chinese food restaurant. By this point, Tanner was <coughs> was a federal judge emeritus or something. He only had to take he only had to adjudicate the cases that he chose. And so most of the time, most of the day, they sat in this Chinese food restaurant yelling at each other. Uh, and you know, and my dad was yelling about Clarence Thomas, and Tanner was keeping quiet with the kind of with a smug look on his face, which is basically how they always were looking at each other smugly. And Tanner said, I support Clarence Thomas. And my dad almost lost his mind because they had spent their entire lives together, often together, working for the cause of justice and racial equality and, you know, and liberal politics. And Clarence Thomas was, was the worst, right? An enormous step back for all of those things. And Tanner was like, nope, it's a black guy on the Supreme Court. I support him. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. A different, it's a different axis. That's right. It's a different axis. He's like, it doesn't matter to me if he's an avowed Nazi. It's important, and he matters to me, and he's a black guy on the Supreme Court. Done. And my dad could never accept it. He, you know, he would go this way and that way, but of course it was a thing that my dad didn't 
even having even having been best friends with them uh basically their whole adult life since the time they were 24 he couldn't get inside his head he couldn't understand what it was like to be uh, a black judge right tanner was a federal judge like he he this guy was his peer and his politics were secondary so wow that watching those two argue because you know i'm sitting there of course in in combat boots with a soul patch going jesus can we just order you know what are you what are you going to get you're going to get mushu pork and general so's chicken like every time can we and the waiter's standing there and they're like i'll tell you what i'm going to do about it <laughs> you didn't even you never even saw a pistol yes i did david <laughs> i fired my pistol many times i wish you'd recorded that I wish I had too. You know, oh my God, Tanner told this story one time that blew my mind. He was a lawyer and there was, an, and it was during the era of the radicalization of, the, of American Indians, the American Indian movement, AIM, that was behind the, uh, the takeover of Alcatraz, Al- Alcatraz and, the, and the, the showdown at Oglala. It was that early 70s era when, uh, when the, the tribes became radicalized. And there was a, and the chief of the Puyallup tribe in Washington, right near Tacoma, was a man named Satyakum. And Satyakum was a young, charismatic activist chief who was, uh, who was radical, but also personally radical. And Tanner was his lawyer, and they were always he was he was constantly in trouble. He was, you know, he was like running guns and money. I mean, it was the revolutionary era, the uh, you know the uh, Symbionese army, Liberation Army. Right. It's a, it's a time when there were all kinds of groups coming along that were uh, very unconventional and asymmetric, and it was sometimes difficult to understand coming from the outside, why this group was even together. Yeah, and it was like, well, we're overthrowing the U.S. government. That's the end goal. And we're we're allied with the IRA and the PLO, uh, but we're, you know, but we're the Puyallup tribe. Right. Anyway, at some point, Satyakam was under indictment and the feds were coming for him. And he showed up at Tanner's office with like three grocery bags full of money. What? And he said, let's get out of here. And he and Tanner flew to Bangkok with three grocery bags full of money and proceeded to spend a year like buying diamonds and emeralds and taking them to India and and it was it was it was like a, a, a trying total, to get him trying to get him set up for the long haul no, just fucking being just living. Um, and it was like a Hunter S. Thompson scene. Tanner was his lawyer. They ended up, they ended up at the Rumble in the Jungle, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the the famous boxing match. Watching the big fight. Uh, somehow, you know, somehow they were, you know, they were funneling, they were running money through Paris, and all these diamonds sewed into their waistcoats, and. And then they made it back to America and Satyakam, I don't know, went to 
either went to prison or went underground, ended up in Canada. And this story just, I was probably 24 and he, he wove this story. This was a, a story where my dad didn't interrupt him once. We just sat there and listened to this. And my, you know, my dad verified it independently that, you know, that he, this wasn't, this wasn't exaggerated or a tall tale. Who knows? Hmm. Neither one. I don't know if either one of those guys knew the difference. But, you know, but the way Tanner cast the story, Satyakam was this legend. Like a folk hero. A folk hero. That's precisely it. All the ladies loved him and all the men looked up to him. And he, he had a gun in his boot and a grocery bag full of money. And they're in Bangkok in 72 or, what you know. And at the rumble in the jungle with with the uh, you know with George Plimpton, and it's just like what kind of lives have you led? This you know, and then then uh, f- uh, five years later he gets appointed to the federal bench. Jeez, <clears throat> it just makes me I don't know. It just makes me feel like um, well, yeah. But I mean, it also kind of doesn't it also kind of feed into your whole like how come I never got to be? Well, in yeah. A, what I'm at, I'm at South by Southwest. That's the highlight of my year. It's <laughs> the highlight of 2004. I went to South by Southwest. Yeah. I saw a spoon in a garage. Jack Tanner's, you know, in Vietnam, buying and selling helicopters. Maybe maybe you should be carrying around more money in grocery bags. Well, don't think that I am not trying. How many times have I mentioned money in in grocery bags or duffel bags? Have you got any nibbles on that? Have you gotten any? Not a one. Is Is that right? Not a one, and that's I think sick, that's sickening. Well, I think it is that uh, I think it is that the entrepreneurs are waiting. They're waiting for. They're waiting for me to. I don't know. Do the dog whistle, right? It's a dog whistle. It's a dog whistle, yeah. And they're yeah. out there. They're you know they they've got a company with fifteen people, and they've got a CTO, a COO, a CEO, a CLO, a mm-hmm. CQO, a CRO. Uh, C-R-O-W, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then like two employees, two engineers, right? And, uh, and they're there at their, their board meetings and somebody says, all right, we've been, you know, we've been listening to Roderick on the line for a long time. How, when are we going to hire Merlin and John yeah. and make them CMO and CJO? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Chief uh, Merlin officer, Chief John officer. That's right. Uh-huh. And, uh, and they're like, not yet, right? Mm. Like, and I think it's a, one of these, it's a question of like pre-IPO, post-IPO. Interesting. If we, if so they, they bring wait us on, to see how the product development goes, and then decide they want to get. They don't want to be the first ones to invest. They want to be the second ones to invest. Well, yeah, but if they if they bring us on pre IPO and they give us give us like options on a million shares each, mm-hmm. how is that going to water down? Oh, you're talking about you're worried about share dilution. Share dilution, right? As opposed to bring us on after the IPO, and then we're just you know we're getting we're getting some compensation, not you know not the preferred stock. Mm-mm. So I don't. I mean, I can't. I keep every morning I wake up, I go downstairs. I used to go downstairs, open the door, and there was the newspaper. But the day after I lost the primary election for the Seattle City Council, I also unsubscribed to the fucking newspaper because the Seattle newspaper is awful. <laughs> and so I was, it's the first thing I did, I woke up that morning, I called the newspaper and said, cancel my subscription. <laughs> take out your legal pad with the big checklist on it. <laughs> just like, cancel my subscription, take down that website, you know, like never talk to these five people again. Yeah. Um, but so now every morning I go downstairs in my robe and instead of opening the door, looking for my newspaper, I open the door expecting there to be a Filson bag full of money. 
You've been you've been very clear about this. But it just keeps not happening. <sighs> so I don't know. I mean, you know, the thing is there's nobody more frugal than a rich person. That's that's right? how you get rich. So they want they want value for the dollar. They're driving their nineteen seventy eight Volvo and they're like, What's where's the where's the value for the dollar? Right. Also, I think people may may misunderstand. Let's be honest. There is an element that, to this of, yes, you actually do want somebody to give you a lot of money so you can be rich. But there's a lot more to it than that. I think there's something, there's a very human part of this story too, which is you want what that represents for both you and the person giving it. Right? It's a hakuna matata. Like, them giving you this money is going to create a bigger gesture. It's not just about the money, although it's mostly about the money. Right. Koyana Skatsi. Koyana Skatsi. Yeah. Go ahead, Scotty. Hey, hey, up and That's up. out of you. Uh, right, of course. I understand. I mean, I've been to San Francisco, right? That's true. I know how it feels to be in the eye of the storm. Oh boy! Right? Oh boy! Do you, yeah. do you remember when you wouldn't go south of Market? Mm. Now what's south of Market? Piles of money. Piles of money on top of piles of poo because they never wash down the sidewalks. People are just sleeping on the money because they can't afford a place to live. <laughs> sleeping on the money is exactly right. It's actually cheaper to sleep on money than get a house here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can't afford a house? Mm-mm. Just make a nest of money. <laughs> sleep on your money pile. <laughs> 20% <laughs> down. <laughs> 20% down. Ah, uh, Koyana Scotsy. All right. 